This morning, if you would, uh, turn to Luke chapter 23. Um, Because this is Palm Sunday, we want to uh, look at another aspect of what Jesus did for us, uh, which we celebrate at Easter time. Obviously, uh, the beginning of the Passion Week is Sunday, this Sunday, Palm Sunday, when the crowds celebrated the entrance of Jesus on a donkey into Jerusalem, and they honored him as the coming king, the Messiah, and they laid palm branches in the road and their clothing and all those kinds of things and sang his praises in various ways. And then, ironically, by the end of the week, by Friday, which we call Good Friday, uh, the crowds were singing a different tune and they were calling for his crucifixion. And so what we want to do today is think about the last words of the one with the last word. And the reality is, is that Jesus, because of all that he accomplished at Easter time, what we celebrate, is the judge of the living and the dead. Every single person, everyone in here, including myself, everyone out there, everyone who's ever lived will one day have to stand before Jesus. Jesus will have the last word on our lives. And that's why it's important for us to consider his last words as he died on the cross so that we might um, hear the truth and in light of what he came to do, be saved. Um, This is just a very brief summary, a simple summary uh, that you can use with children and anyone to think through uh, the gospel. God is the supreme good who created us to find our holiness and our happiness in him. Man is an idol worshiper who does not love love God as he should, does not love people as he should, and deserves a just punishment. And that's what Easter is all about, the fact that God in his mercy has provided a solution to the fact that we deserve a just punishment. And so Jesus came to provide that solution. He is the double cure. And what do we mean by that? Well, last week we talked about the fact that Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness. He came to live the life that we could never live, which is a life of perfect love to God and perfect love to man. And he obeyed God perfectly 24-7 throughout his life, even to the point of death on a cross. And so therefore he fulfilled the requirement of going to heaven that says you must be righteous, you must fulfill all the law of God. But there's also another part of our problem, which is we have not fulfilled God's law. We have not loved him. We have not loved others as we should. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. And therefore, not only did Jesus need to live the life we can never live, he also came to die the death that we deserve to die. And that's why we say that Jesus is the double cure for sinners, because he said um, healthy people don't need a physician but I've come uh, to heal and to save those who are truly sick. And so God calls us to faith in what he's promised us through Jesus, and he calls us to love in light of how uh, Jesus has loved us. And so we're focusing today on the death of Jesus, and we want to just remember that um, in all of this, when we come to read what we're going to read this morning, we're going to just focus on what Jesus said on the cross. There are seven things Jesus said uh, that help us understand the magnitude of what happened on the cross because 
in God's sovereign uh, ordination of things, he did not ordain that Jesus come in the time of video and audio. So, th- so that we don't have any audio or video record of Jesus dying on the cross. And so the implication must be, we have all that we need in words to see the cross as we need to see it. The reality is, someone has said that by the time that Jesus died on the cross, in Palestine alone, the Romans had crucified 30,000 people. And it was a very public event. They wanted it to be a spectator event. They wanted people to show up and watch because they wanted it to be a deterrent to anyone challenging the Roman government. And so uh, plenty of people showed up to watch the spectacle. So it was a very common sight. So it wasn't like people would be shocked to see someone crucified. It would be an everyday experience almost in their lives. And they would look at the people on the cross and they would not think, oh, that poor innocent person. They would think anyone who would die that kind of death must have done something terrible. Because in their minds, rich people and those who had an easy life were the ones that were under God's favor. Those who had hard times and who died on a cross were cursed by God. And so they looked at people who were crucified and they saw them as being cursed by man and cursed by God. And so the reality is when they looked at Jesus and anyone else on the cross, that's what they would see and that's what they would think. And when they looked at Jesus, they would not have thought, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the mystery of the cross. That is the true meaning of of the cross. That is what was really happening. Paul said, for while we were still helpless at the right time, when there was no video and audio, at the right time Christ died for not those who are righteous, but for the ungodly. And so if you're ungodly, uh, you have a Savior that's been provided. He also said, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly, and he manifested the love of God to sinners. And so what we celebrate at Easter time is the amazing, gracious love of God for sinners. And so this morning, we want to think through that a little more. Think about the words that we find in Scripture that help us to understand what actually happened when Christ was crucified. One of the things that's interesting to read is to read the last words of people right before they die. And uh, sometimes those things are just interesting. Sometimes they're just strange. Sometimes they're funny, like Groucho Marx, supposedly, some people would say, just before he died, uh, someone was talking to him, and he said, die, my dear? Well, that's the last thing I'll do. (laughs) And he was right. And the reality is, the death of Christ was the last thing he did. But it was very, very significant because it was the last act of obedience to his father. And you see that reflected in what he says on the cross. Now, the Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified at about 9 o'clock in the morning until between 3 and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. He was on the cross about 6 to 7 hours. 
And three of the things that are recorded that he said happened between 9 o'clock and noon. And then from noon to 3 was the darkness. And there's no recorded words during that dark time. And then very at the very end, uh, Jesus speaks again four more times. Uh, three of the quotes are found in Luke. Uh, three of them are found in John. One's found in both Matthew and Mark. The first words of Jesus on the cross are spoken as a prayer to his father. The last words of Jesus on the cross are spoken as a prayer to his father. The fourth word, the, the middle uh, words of Jesus, so to speak, of the seven is spoken to God, but he doesn't call him Father. He says, my God, my God. The other verses, or excuse me, the other things he says, the second and third things that Jesus say are directed to people, directed to the thief on the cross, directed to John and to Mary. And so what I'd like to do, obviously we can't spend a lot of time talking about each of these, but I'd like for us to think about what these mean. And so the first one is found in Luke 23:34. The Bible tells us that they took Jesus to, the, to a place called the skull. It's because it looked like a skull, the form of the place where they crucified people. And it says in verse 33, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. And then verse 34, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Then it goes on to say they cast lots, dividing up his garments. It's interesting, at the death of Steve Jobs, uh, his sister reported that as he was dying, he said, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. And you have to wonder what he saw at that point, wonder what he was responding to. The reality is when we hear Jesus say to those who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them, we ought to respond with, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow, because that's an incredible thing. I doubt anyone heard anyone else say anything like that while that person was being crucified. More than likely, the the thing that they heard most often were things like what the thieves were saying, especially initially, um, calling out mockingly, attacking, cursing, being angry at those who were doing what they were doing. Uh, All kinds of things probably were coming out of the mouths of those who were being crucified. I doubt they ever heard someone say, Father, forgive those who crucified me. Now, the question is, who is he referring to when he says, Father, forgive them? Some people think he means uh, it was a prayer for God to forgive everyone, and yet it would be up to God who actually received forgiveness based on his sovereign work in their hearts and their repentance and their faith. Others would say he was referring to uh, the religious leaders and the crowd who had shouted crucify him and the soldiers who actually did the crucifixion. Others would say um, in the immediate context, it says they crucified him and the criminals. And it says right after that, they cast lots. And so the immediate context would be the soldiers, that the ones who actually nailed the nails in his hands. Now, God knows what all that referred to, but it at least refers to the soldiers. 
It at least refers to those who did something that you could call an unpardonable sin. To crucify the very Son of God. And Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Uh, Matthew Henry says this was one way in which uh, Isaiah 53 was fulfilled when it says, and he interceded for the transgressors on the cross. You might remember when Stephen is martyred, as he's dying, he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And that as they were stoning him. So that very well could be what Jesus is referring to here. But regardless of how broad this prayer was, it expresses the purpose of the cross. The purpose of the cross was that we might be forgiven. That's why he died. The story in the Old Testament in Exodus, when God tells the people to kill a lamb and put the blood on the doorposts. And he says, if you do that, then when the death angel comes, he will pass over you and you will be rescued from God's wrath. And so what's going on here is that Jesus is saying the cross is very much about forgiveness and how if my blood is applied to your life, how you will escape the wrath, the just wrath of a holy God. Shed blood applied was required to escape the wrath of God in Exodus, and it's still required to escape the wrath of God today. The second word that Jesus gives is found in verse 43 of this same chapter, because in verse 39 and following, we see there's a change that happens. He, he is crucified between two thieves, and initially both the thieves appear to be mocking Jesus, but then there's a change in one of them, and one of them begins to talk to the other thief and and says, do you not even fear God since we are under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed are suffering justly? This is verse 41. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And so this thief is beginning to see that he deserves what he's getting, but Jesus doesn't. And then he goes on to say in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember me when you come in your kingdom, which means that he began to see who Jesus really was. Jesus is bloody from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, and he does not look like a king on the outside. But that dying thief saw the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, saw the king that was promised to Israel. He said, when you come into your kingdom, when all this is done, remember me, meaning make me a part of your kingdom. Someday in the future is probably what the thief had in mind. Someday when all of that takes place, may I be a part of your kingdom. Would you have mercy on me? And it says in verse 43 that Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And so Jesus promises that the thief would be with him today, not tomorrow, not a thousand years from now, but this very day you'll be with me in paradise. And the idea of paradise is the idea of the Garden of Eden. 
It's a, a garden full of pleasure. You'll be with me in the exact opposite place of where you are now. You will be in complete, full, and forever joy in the presence of God. It's another word for heaven. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about his own experience of being caught up to the third heaven. And then he says that he was caught up into paradise, so that paradise and heaven are the same thing. And he said, Paul says, I heard inexpressible words in that paradise. And you can imagine that he saw inexpressible things as well. So Jesus promises this man inexpressible joy, joy beyond comprehension. He promises him. In fact, it says in Revelation 2 that to those who overcome through faith in Jesus, Jesus will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This dying thief was promised life and the greatest, most wonderful life there could ever be. In the Old Testament, there's a picture of the cross of Christ in Exodus 17 when the Lord tells Moses, uh, Behold, I will stand before you on the rock. He says, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock. So if you strike the rock and Jesus is on the rock, then you strike Jesus. I will strike the rock, and what will happen? Water will come out that the people may drink. People were complaining about having no water. And God tells Moses, strike the rock and water will come out. And I will be on the rock that struck. Which means, as a picture of the cross, that when Jesus was struck, he was struck that we might drink living water. That we might have the very thirst of our souls satisfied. Whatever legitimate thirst we have, longing, hunger, desire, Jesus says, I will fulfill it. And it will be fulfilled through my death on the cross in place of sinners. And so the first two words of Jesus summarize what the Bible says about the fact that he came that we might be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. So both of those two words in Luke tell us that that's exactly what the cross was intended to do, was that we might be forgiven so that we might enjoy fellowship with God forever. Now, if you would turn to John chapter 19, the third thing that Jesus says is in John 19. John 19. It is, um, I didn't mention before, it's interesting that the Italian artist Raphael said as he died one word and that was happy. That could fit on the lips of the dying thief. I am now happy. And it was through the death of Christ. Well, according to reports, Frank Sinatra, when he died, said, I'm losing it. And I want us to think about that in light of what we see here in John chapter 19. It tells us that as Jesus is being crucified, um, they divide up their, his clothing And then it says in verse 25 of John 19, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, which is Mary, and his mother's sister, and then a third person, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and then a fourth person, Mary Magdalene. 
And it says in verse 26, When Jesus then saw his mother, Mary, and the disciple whom he loved, which apparently refers to John the disciple, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And it says from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. So the reality is you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, standing at the foot of the cross, looking at the son that she had given birth to, looking at the son that she loved dearly and grieving. How do we know that? Well, if you recall, uh, not long after Jesus was born, uh, Mary and Joseph met Simeon in the temple, and Simeon tells Mary that a sword will pierce even your own soul. And that's what he was referring to. He was referring to this point in Mary's life when she would see her son crucified on a cross. And so you've got this mother Mary losing it, obviously terribly grieved, and the Lord Jesus on the cross speaks to her and speaks to John and says to John, I want you to act like a son to my mother. And to Mary says, I want you to submit to that, to embrace his role in taking care of you. I'm not going to be here to take care of you anymore. And we believe that Jesus took care of Mary once Joseph died, whenever that was. And now he's handing that off to John. It says in Genesis 3.15, the very first promise of salvation, um, God is speaking to the serpent, and he says, after the fall of Adam and Eve, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So what was happening at the cross? Satan was bruising Jesus on the heel. But Jesus was crushing the head of Satan, even though he was being crushed at the same time. So you could say the seed of the woman, which is Jesus, he was not born of the seed of man. He was born through the virgin birth of uh, Mary. And we can say the seed of the woman honors his virgin mother as he crushes the serpent's head. And so we see Jesus loving to the very end. He was a dutiful son to the very end. The fact that he was suffering did not keep him from loving to the very end. And that's why he says, if you're having trouble loving because you're suffering, come to me. I know what it's like to suffer and still be called to love. And so Jesus cares for Mary under this amazing situation. And some have said the way he phrases it is similar to um, legal adoption formulas of that day and time. In a sense, he's saying, John, I want you to, uh, in a sense, adopt my mother, and Mary, I want you to adopt John, so to speak, and live in light of that. And so those three words of Jesus happen between nine and noon. And then at noontime, the Bible tells us that everything got dark. 
And we don't know if that meant dark around the whole world or dark in the land of Israel, but it was dark. It was a supernatural darkness, as it says um, in Matthew 27. If you'd like to turn to Matthew 27, we have the fourth uh, thing that Jesus says, and he says this after um, almost all the three hours are done. So he's been silent from noon till about three. He's been going through the deepest, darkest thing that you can imagine. And then at the very end of it all, he begins speaking again. And he says uh, something that is meant to tell us of the horrors that he's been experiencing. One of the uh, men that um, in history has died, what we would call a horrible death, is Voltaire. And Voltaire was an atheist. And according to those who heard him in his final moments, Voltaire said, I am abandoned by God and man. And in talking to his doctor who was caring for him in his last moments, he said, I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. The doctor said, I can't do anything for you. And Voltaire said, then I shall die and go to hell. His nurse who cared for him all the way to the end said, for all the money in Europe, I wouldn't want to see another unbeliever die. All night long, he cried for forgiveness. Voltaire began to experience the consequences of rejecting the truth. And the consequence of that was abandonment by God and man. And that's exactly what we see Jesus suffering in our place, is abandonment by God and man. It says in Matthew 27, uh, verse 45, Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Sixth hour is noon, ninth hour is three. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it says the same thing in Mark 15. So what's going on here? What What is uh, implied by the idea of being forsaken? Well, obviously he says very clearly that it's God who's forsaken him. And the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean to be forsaken by God? Well, it means that everything that God and knowing God and being in fellowship with God, everything that that does for you, is taken away. You cease to enjoy the fellowship with God or any of the benefits of being blessed by God. Every blessing is removed. The presence of God is removed for Jesus. And so the joy and the peace that he had before was no longer there. He was left to the horrors of being completely abandoned by God and the horrors of a just penalty that the sin of the world deserves. Now, the Bible says certain things that are meant to give us a little idea 
of what this means because we cannot fully understand. When we, talk, when we sing about the mystery of the cross, I cannot comprehend, that is true. We will never comprehend what Jesus meant when he said, why have you abandoned me? We will not fully comprehend it, but the Bible tells us enough to let us know what was going on during those dark, dark moments. It tells us in, in Isaiah 53, it says, He was pierced through for our, our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, which means our is the key word. He wasn't dying for his sins. He was dying for our sins, for our transgressions. In Isaiah 53, 8, it says, He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. That's why we say he died the death that we deserve to die. Because he was cut off. He died for for our transgressions, which was due us. It's what we deserve. It says in verse 11 of Isaiah 53, He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many. So he bore our sins. It says in verse 6, That the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And the result of all of that sin, sin being placed on Jesus, it says in Galatians 3, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's why I say when they looked at people on the cross, they said, cursed one. Not, oh, that must be the savior of the world. It takes God to open our eyes and to see the truth of what was really happening there. It says that he was made sin for us in 2 Corinthians 5. He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, was not a sinner. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In Isaiah 53.10, it says, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Now, that's hard to imagine, but if there's any person in the universe you don't want to be crushed by, it's God. And the idea of crushing implies being ground to dust, being afflicted as much as you can be afflicted. It says in Matthew 25 that the the just punishment for sin is to be thrown into the outer darkness And in that place, Jesus said, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It says in Isaiah 53, surely our griefs he bore and our sorrows he carried. Which means that not only did Jesus experience the crushing blow of what our sin deserves, he experienced all the suffering that comes with sin. If you can imagine all the kinds of suffering that sin causes, Jesus experienced our griefs as well as divine punishment for our sin, which means all the grief that we've endured through people's sin against us, he, in some sense, endured that grief. And so it's beyond understanding what all that means. It means he was afflicted physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. He was crushed 
in all those ways. We think of being crushed physically, having a finger uh, crushed one way or the other. We talk about being crushed uh, emotionally, being crushed mentally. We think about all those kinds of things in the, in the Lord Jesus experience what we deserve in all those ways. And that's why in Revelation, it talks about the just punishment for sin is the fierce wrath of God. And Jonathan Edwards, in preaching his sermon on sinners in the hands of an angry God, uh, talks about how terrifying the fierce wrath of God must be. But in all of this, Jesus does not get angry at God. He doesn't respond in an inappropriate way, but he actually responds in faith because he responds by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is in Psalm 22. He quotes scripture, but doesn't quote it in a rote sort of way. He quotes it in such a way that is meant to let us know not only what was happening to him, but how he was responding to what was happening to him. In Psalm 22, it starts off in verse 1 by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. Jesus is being crushed in every way possible for my sin and your sin. And he expresses trust in God. Trust in his father. He does not doubt in that very moment of having no indication that God loved him anymore, having no uh, outward experience that would say, yes, my father still loves me. Every sense of being accepted and loved by God was gone. And his experience said everything but God loves me and I can trust him. And yet the great author of our salvation, whom we are to trust and follow, says, I trust you. I trust you as I'm being crushed. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. It says in the um, Old Testament, Genesis 22, Abraham is called to kill his son, Isaac, his only son whom he loved. And God stops him as he raises the, the knife to kill him. And then God provides a ram in the thicket. And it says that Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in place of his son. What God did for Abraham, he did not do for himself. He did not provide someone in the place of his son. He provided his son for you and for me. Jesus was a substitute. He was a substitute for sinners who trusted in his father, even as he was forsaken by him, all for our sakes. The darkness that he experienced 
The physical darkness was a picture of the spiritual darkness because darkness in the Bible often points to divine judgment. That's why I said earlier, what does mankind deserve? Divine judgment. And that's what Jesus experienced on the cross. Well, he says uh, three more things, and you can find the fifth one in John 19, if you'd like to turn there, John 19, 28. I'll just touch on these brief, briefly. Um, as Benjamin Franklin was dying, his uh, daughter asked him to change position in bed uh, so that he could breathe more easily. And the last thing he said was, a dying man can do nothing easy, whether it's breathe or anything else. And as I just mentioned, if we really think about what Jesus was going through, we could say that there was nothing easy about the cross. Nothing easy about the cross physically or emotionally or mentally or spiritually. And obviously, not only do you have what God is doing and what's happening in his own heart and mind, you have even the devil and his demons involved in various ways so that he was attacked and tormented in every way possible. And so what he says in verse uh, 28 is, after this, and this is at the end of all of this, as all of this is coming to a close, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. And it says they filled a jar with sour wine and stuck it up on a reed to his mouth that he might receive it. So we have to ask the question, what is that all about? Well, I am thirsty is a quote from Psalm 69. And in context, in verse 19 of Psalm 69, it says, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Now, some people think this was an act of compassion, that this vinegar was often used by soldiers just to quench their own thirst. Others understand it in light of Psalm 69, that it was basically saying, there's no comfort being given to me by anyone. And so Jesus is um, speaking those words, I am thirsty, uh, so that the soldiers will be moved to fulfill that scripture as an indication that he was the Davidic Messiah spoken about in Psalm 69. He did it, many would say, to be strengthened for the last things he would say right before he died. And it could be, too, that he did it to express his desire to see the fruit of what he had just went through. That he was saying, I'm thirsty to see the fruit of what I've just endured. Because it says in Isaiah 53, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He could have been saying, I am ready to see the fruit of my sufferings. I'm ready to see the many that I've died to justify. It says in the Old Testament that on the Day of Atonement that they would have one goat that was set aside to die, another goat that was set aside to be sent into the wilderness. And to be sent into the wilderness is a picture of being separated from the people of God 
and the presence of God. It's a picture of complete anguish of soul. And Jesus is both the death goat and the scapegoat who suffered those things in our place. Well, if you look at um, John 19.30, Jesus goes on to say, um, it is finished, the sixth thing he said on the cross. There was a murderer who was standing in front of a firing squad. And they asked him right before he was to be executed if he had a last request. And his request was, bring me a bulletproof vest. (laughs) Obviously, they didn't do that. But what is Jesus saying when he says it is finished? He is saying every one of us deserves to be put in front of the firing squad of God's just judgment. There is a bulletproof vest. There is a wrath-proof vest vest, it is called the finished work of Christ, that we can be shielded from, protected from, and rescued from the just, fierce wrath of God. So it says in verse 30, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So what did Jesus complete? He completed the mission the Father had given him. He fulfilled all righteousness. He suffered all that needed to be suffered that we might be set free from that suffering. He fully prepared a salvation to offer to the world, to provide to all those who will believe, and for all those whom the Father had given to him. The Bible tells us that Jesus said, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And he fulfilled what he came to do. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's what he did. There's a parable in Matthew 22 where it says, uh, the one giving this big dinner says, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. In a very respectful sober way, we can say Jesus has been butchered and everything is ready. The Bible says in Isaiah 52, Jesus looked more marred than any man. He was butchered in our place and now everything is ready. Forgiveness has been secured for all those who will repent and believe. To telestai, the word that Jesus used for it is finished, means paid in full. It was often written on tax receipts, paid in full. The last uh, word that Jesus says is in Luke 23, um, when he says, Father, 2346, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Sir Isaac Newton, when he died, said, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then and finding a smoother pedible or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. So in Luke 23, what does Jesus mean when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit? 
he means that he was trusting the father and laying down his life because his life wasn't taken. He gave his life when he was ready. He gave up his spirit when he was ready. That's why he died earlier than most people died on the cross. He was prepared to give up his life, trusting that the father would take him to paradise, just like he told the thief, and trusting that the father would raise him from the dead on the third day, as he said that he would, and that he would reign over all the nations as it was promised in the Old Testament, and that he was an able and willing savior for sinners. If you look at the context of Psalm uh, 31, verse 5, when it says, into your hand I commit my spirit, the context is trusting the Lord as a refuge, trusting in the loving kindness of the Lord, and saying, you have not given me over into the hand of the enemy. Now, God did give Jesus over into the hand of the enemy, but only temporarily, not ultimately. And that's why it says in Psalm 16, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. It says in Hebrews, he laid down his life for the joy set before him. And he knew that joy was coming. And he commit, committed himself into the hands of the Father. For centuries, those words formed the evening prayer of pious Jews. I was taught as a little boy the prayer, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my soul the Lord to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That's the spirit of I die, I'm committing myself into your hands because I believe I can trust you with life and death. And Jesus experienced that and exhibited that as a model for all believers upon their death. One of the things, and I'll close with this, one of the things that's mentioned several places at the death of Jesus is the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. What does that mean? It means the curtain right in front of the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies was where God manifested his presence. It means that when Jesus died, the way was opened to enjoy fellowship with God again, just like it was enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. The question is whether or not we believe that Jesus did that and whether or not we trust him enough to commit ourselves into his hands. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. And I pray that for anyone here who has not yet committed themselves into the hands of Jesus, that they would believe the word, that they would see what he really accomplished on the cross, and that they would entrust themselves wholly and fully into his hands for a joy set before them. For those of us who have done that, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy in knowing that we have an able and willing Savior and a great Lord over all things who would would experience the worst that could be experienced, that that we might enjoy the best that could ever be enjoyed. May we rejoice in you this Easter. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.